The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, so uh, good morning everyone uh, and uh, welcome back again. Uh, today we're going to have a look at the uh, Upakilesa Sutta, uh, translated here as Corruptions, in, also found in the Majjhimanikaya, the middle-length sayings, number 128. And uh, this, again, is uh, as all of these suttas, they are about the uh, Buddha-to-be's uh, practices before his awakening. Uh, and we're going to continue uh, looking at the sort of things that he did, especially to attain, <coughs> to practice meditation practice, how to attain samadhi and these sort of issues. Uh, and this sutta is particularly about the obstructions uh, to samadhi, uh, uh, but it has a long introduction as well, which is very inspiring and very nice. And to my mind, it's one of those very uh, beautiful suttas uh, uh, that... Uh, you know, focuses on many of the kind of core and fundamental ideas of the path. Uh, so we're going to have a look at this. Uh, and um, this sutta is related to a number of other suttas as well. Uh, it's related to a particular incident that uh, happened at the time <coughs> of the Buddha, uh, which uh, concerned an argument in the Sangha. And uh, for that reason, it is found in a number of places, found in the Vinaya Pitaka, also here. Some of these verses are also found in the Dhammapada uh, itself. Uh, so these are kind of spread out in various places uh, in the suttas and the Buddhist scriptures. Uh, so um, let's have a look at this and see what happens as we go along. Um, so uh, this is how it goes. <coughs> so I have heard uh, at one time the Buddha was staying near Kosambi in Gosita's monastery here. Uh, now at that time, the mendicants of Kasambi were arguing, quarreling and disputing, uh, continually wounding each other with barbed words. So uh, here we have the Buddha staying in a new city we haven't seen before, Kasambi, one of the great cities of ancient India. There were six cities that were considered great, uh, and Kasambi is one of the few places that has been uh, excavated archaeologically in fairly recent years. Uh, and again, it is all fairly small scale, which is interesting. Nothing is really very large in those days. I think I mentioned this before. And so it gives an idea of what ancient India was like. And what you find when you excavate these things, you don't find very much at all. What you find are some of the kind of walls around the cities, the embankments, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, there doesn't seem to have been much construction out of uh, durable materials such as bricks or stone, uh, mostly wooden things, so most of it has just disappeared, and it's only kind of the outlines of the city that are really left in the present day. Uh, so uh, Kosambi is uh, quite far away from where the Buddha would normally stay. It is kind of up the river Ganges, uh, and it is at the confluence, I think, of the Yamuna and the Ganges rivers. Uh, and where they kind of come together, that's where Kosambi is. It's a kind of an important uh, port on the river Ganges. Uh, the river Ganges obviously was a very important trade route, and that's why the big cities were located on these rivers uh, 
So, uh, Gosita's monastery. Gosita would then have been the donor of this monastery. don't know anything about Gosita myself. I'm sure there were some stories somewhere, but this is not, uh, I don't know anything about those. Uh, and here we have the monks arguing, quarreling, and disputing, yeah, continually wounding each other with verbal daggers. Uh, the Pali word is a verbal daggers. Uh, satta is a dagger or a, a knife or a sword. Uh, and uh, what is it? Um, um, what is the Pali word for? Uh, I can't remember now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Barbed words is a nice uh, translation here by Bhantasujato. Uh, and um, so the Sangha is arguing, which obviously is a bad idea. Buddha probably not too impressed. Lay people are not too impressed. No one is very impressed at all. Uh, but this is what human beings do. Uh, they argue with each other. Uh. Then a mendicant went up to the Buddha, bowed, stood to one side, and told him what was happening, adding, Please, sir, go to those mendicants out of compassion. And the Buddha consented in silence. So there was one monk who was concerned, probably many monks who were concerned about what was happening, and they wanted the Buddha to intervene. And uh, this is kind of interesting, yeah, when the Buddha intervenes in these kind of arguments or discussions or intervenes in human affairs in general, uh, what can we expect to happen? Uh, and I think a lot of people would expect to happen is that the Buddha is able to sort out anything, right? Because the Buddha is very powerful and he can kind of get people to see, sense and sort things out. Uh, and uh, of course the reality is uh, that uh, even for the Buddha, uh, uh, there is limits to what he can do. Uh, and this is kind of extraordinary. It's not normally how we think about the Buddha. Uh, we think about the Buddha as someone who can sort everything out. Uh, but because the Buddha is a human being, uh, just like everyone else, there are limits to what he can do. And this is what we will see here. Uh, and uh, again, you can get this feeling of the Buddha being much more human than we normally actually consider him. Uh, and this is, um, so the limitations are quite obvious. Uh, what is also interesting here is how they invite the Buddha, yeah, how he is invited to come. They say, please come out of compassion. It's a nice way of inviting someone. Yeah, don't, you know, it's not about, you know, please come and teach us. Out of compassion, it's like it's, you are, um, uh, in a sense, you are kind of... Um, Asking for the high, you know, uh, making the Buddha understand, well, actually, we have a problem here. We're all suffering. There is a problem. Uh, please kind of come and help us and aid us in these things. And it's a nice way of asking someone for uh, a teaching or whatever, to ask them to come out of compassion. It's like you understand uh, that um, what is going on and you understand the reality of things. Uh, so this is something that you can also ask. Yeah, If you want someone to give a teaching, please teach out of compassion. Uh, because that is what how teachings really should be given. Uh, and this is kind of the purpose of these teachings. Uh. So anyway, um, so the Buddha consents in silence. Uh. Then the Buddha went up to those mendicants uh, and he said, Enough mendicants, uh, stop arguing, quarreling and disputing here. Uh. And again, you would think that if the Buddha came and said that, uh, you would think that they might stop, right? <laughs> it's not as simple as that, unfortunately. But you would, you know, you, and again, this gives us an idea of how the Buddha was seen by these monastics at that time in their response, how they respond to this. When he said this, one of the mendicants said to the Buddha, Wait, sir, 
Let the Buddha, the Lord of the Dhamma, remain passive, dwelling in blissful meditation in the present life. We will be known for this arguing, quarreling, and disputing. Yeah. <laughs> mm, I'm not sure if that is considered very respectful, uh, to be honest. Uh, it's kind of... Uh, it's a little bit dodgy. The Buddha comes, the kind of the leader of the Sangha, and you just tell him, please, just, you know, go away, because we, we want to kind of argue in peace. Let us argue. We will kind of uh, do this. We don't want to have any interference in our arguments. Uh, so please just go and enjoy your meditation. Uh, and, uh, but it's kind of fairly obvious when you see this, uh, that the Buddha was almost uh, considered like... Uh, he was the leader in a certain way, but he was also just considered like an ordinary human being. Yeah, they kind of, okay, you know, they, they didn't really consider him as kind of something super duper special. In the present day, if you ask someone how they would behave if the Buddha told them to not argue, people would think that, of course, we wouldn't argue because our idea of the Buddha is so different from what it was in those days. And for them, the Buddha was almost more like one human among others. And this is kind of the feeling you get here. And so it kind of corrects our view of the Buddha a little bit. That's kind of fascinating in its own right. So, um, yeah, but obviously it is also kind of impolite and disrespectful to dismiss the Buddha in this way. He is your leader. He is the one you should take admonishment from. And you shouldn't kind of be so... Uh, so stupid about this. Uh, for a second time and a third time, time, the Buddha said to those mendicants, enough mendicants, enough monks, stop arguing, quarreling and disputing. Uh, and for a third time, that mendicant said to the Buddha, wait, sir, let the Buddha, the Lord of the Dhamma, remain passive, dwelling in blissful meditation in the present life. We will be known for this arguing, quarreling and disputing. Uh, and uh, what does the Buddha do uh, when this happens? Uh, and I think he does what many people would do in that kind of situation. Uh, he realizes that there's nothing more to be said. Uh, he has tried his very best to overcome uh, a difficult problem, the division in the Sangha. And he's not able to do that. So sometimes you just have to withdraw, right? Uh, and this is the thing that when people very often, they ask questions, oh, my family members or I have these kind of people they don't want to listen to the Dhamma how can I convince them that the Dhamma should be practiced or whatever and sometimes we just have to let go yeah, because there isn't any solution to the problem and this is kind of how the Buddha what the Buddha does in this particular case he realizes that actually there is no solution people are not going to listen this is the wrong time well, there may be a solution but not right now the solution may come down the track yeah and this is how often we should also relate to people around us, by letting go, by allowing people to kind of wear out their stubbornness or wear out their delusion for a while. And then when the time is right, then you come back to people. Then you make another effort at trying to correct their views and correct their misunderstandings or whatever. So everything is about time and place. And in the meantime, you're just going to have to be patient, wait for the right time to come. And so be very careful when you are dealing with your uh, family members or friends and you want to convince them and you want to persuade them what is right view. Uh, you have to uh, be very patient in that kind of situation. Uh, if you feel that you are coming from impatience, uh, from a desire to change them, uh, from even maybe from some negative emotions, don't say anything. If, you, if it is your need uh, that you are trying to 
kind of, uh, you know, you're trying to fulfill your own needs. That is when you have a problem. And very often when we want to change other people, it's actually our own needs that we're trying to fulfill. We want them to change because they are close to us, because of our attachments and our desires. But other people will feel that. They will feel it is your needs that you're trying to fulfill. And when they feel that, they're going to resist and they can become more stubborn. But if they do feel that you're coming really out of compassion and kindness, that is when they will be open. So wait for the right time. Make sure that your own mind is pure, that actually you are really coming from compassion and kindness. And when you are, then the possibility will be open. Then the chance that they will listen to you is there. And so in this case, the same with the Buddha. The Buddha realized, actually, there is nothing I can do right now. And the Buddha then, of course, he will then leave. He goes and he departs because he understands that right now I will come back later on when the time is right for uh, uh, to, to talk some common sense into these monks. So this is what happens next. Then the Buddha robed up in the morning and taking his bowl and robe he entered Kosambi for alms. After the meal on his return from alms round he set his lodgings in order. Taking his bowl and robe he recited these verses while standing right there. So again you have this idea the Buddha goes into the town for arms. Yeah, He goes on arms around, he sets his lodging in order. You get this feeling the Buddha is kind of uh, making sure that his, um, his, his uh, kuti or whatever is kind of organized. Uh, and it's kind of very ordinary. Yeah, this looks like the Buddha is doing it himself. There's no upatak. Yeah. There's, there's no mention of anyone kind of looking after the Buddha, no mention of an attendant or anything like that. Uh, and this is one of the strange things you find in the suttas in many places. The Buddha washing his own feet. Uh, yeah, the Buddha setting his own lodging in order. Uh, this feeling that the Buddha again is kind of very, uh, he's part of the group of monastics. Uh, he doesn't stand out as much as uh, uh, as as people think in the present day. Uh, and it's very useful to remember these things uh, because it uh, uh, humanizes the Buddha in a way. Uh. And then he speaks these verses. And these are very famous verses that are coming up now. Uh. These verses are verses that are found in the Vinaya Pitaka, they're found in the Dhammapada, they are found in, um, in, in this particular sutta. Uh, so they are very, very, very well known. And you will recognize some of these verses straight away as we read through them. So I'll read through them and then I'll come back and, and uh, uh, discuss them in a bit more detail afterwards. Uh, so this is what the Buddha says uh, as he is about to leave the Sangha and uh, strike out on his own, at least for a while. Uh, when many voices shout at once, uh, no one thinks that they're a fool. Uh, while the Sangha is being split, uh, none, none thought another to be better. Uh, dolts pretending to be astute, uh, they talk the words right out of bounds. Uh, they blab at will, their mouth agape, and no one knows what leads them on. They abused me, they hit me, they beat me, they robbed me. For those who bear such a grudge, hatred never ends. They abused me, they hit me, they beat me, they robbed me. For those who bear no such grudge, hatred has an end. 
For never is hatred settled by hate. It's only settled by love. This is an eternal truth. Others don't understand that here we need to be restrained. But those who do understand this, being clever, settle their conflicts. Breakers of bones and takers of life, thieves of cattle horses' wealth, those who plunder the nation, even they can come together. So why on earth can't you? If you find an alert companion, a wise and virtuous friend, then overcoming all adversities, wander with them, joyful and mindful. If you find no alert companion, no wise and virtuous friend, then like a king who flees his conquered realm, wander alone like a tusker in the wilds. It's better to wander alone. There is no fellowship with fools. Wander alone and do no wrong at ease like a tusker in the wilds. You can see the, uh, the Buddha is hinting here that some of these monks are not very wise. Uh, better to just leave them alone uh, because uh, there is no companionship with these kind of with people like this. Uh. So let's just have a look at these verses because they are... Uh, they are really nice, and they're very profound and deep, and they are, they are inspiring in a way because they are verses, but uh, they also have a lot of depth to them. Uh, and uh, even the very starting here, when many voices shout at once, uh, no one thinks that they are a fool. Uh, yeah, this is kind of very common in the human realm. Yeah, we kind of are group people. We come together, uh, and when everyone has the same opinion, we kind of feel that we are right because we're coming together as a group, uh, and we're just kind of being pulled along by the crowd. Uh, it's like when you see a demonstration somewhere, a large group of people together, everyone is shouting together, no one really thinking properly. If the energy of the crowd is kind of drawing you along uh, without really having any cl clarity about what you're doing. Uh, this is how mobs arise, mobs who kind of do all kinds of damage in the world uh, because of their lack of thinking properly and what is actually happening here. Uh. And this is one such case, yeah, where all the monks are coming together, everyone is arguing with each other, and no one really stands back and asks, is there a problem here? Is there an issue? Maybe we shouldn't be doing this. You get pulled along by the crowd. You're taking sides, and once you take sides, you're kind of, you don't really reflect independently anymore. And this is a very important lesson for us as anyone in this world, that you always should be independent. You should always think for yourself. You should never be kind of led along by the crowd. Because crowds are usually stupid. And crowds don't really, very often they have no idea what they're doing. So always be independent. Always ask yourself the simple question, is this right or is this wrong? And if you know that what you're doing is right, then you should carry on doing it. You should never do things simply because it is part of a group pressure or group way of doing things. And this is a very useful because that means you are independent. It means you have integrity in your practice. It means that you are, you do things because simply because they are right. And I remember that one of the kind of really powerful situations for me when I saw this in practice was Again, we're always coming back to this bhikkhuni ordination in, in, uh, that we did at Bodhinyana Monastery in 2009. And after that ordination, Ajahn Brahm was kind of summoned to Thailand so they could kind of have a talk about this and a dressing down or whatever you want to call it. And so you went to Thailand and then Ajahn Brahm, you know, he defended his thing and he 
uh, you know, there was a lot of argument back and forth, and there were some people there who were witnesses to this. So I know a little bit about what happened at that particular time. But uh, at one point, uh, as this discussion was carrying on, uh, uh, Ajahn Brahm was said, well, you know, we want you to declare the ordination invalid. Uh, if you declare it invalid, then everything will be forgiven and it will be fine. Uh, and then Ajahn Brahm, he knows how the Vinaya works. And the Vinaya, which is the, uh, the kind of rules and regulations for monastics, once you have done a certain act, uh, this is called the Sangha Kama, this is an official act of the Sangha, uh, a single monk is not allowed to just annul it. That can't, cannot be done because this is a legal procedure uh, that follows a certain pattern. And it just shows that those monks didn't really understand what was going on. Uh. And uh, so he said, well, can't do that because this has been done as a Sangha Kama, you know. Uh, and he knew that what he was doing was, uh, was, you know, was right, basically. Uh. And so they said, well, in that case, you know, you, you, you can't be part of our group anymore. Uh. And so then... Uh, Ajahn Brahm came back to Perth, and I, you know, I, uh, so I spoke to him, and he, uh, you know, and Ajahn Brahm told me that I asked myself only one question uh, during this whole process, uh, and that one question was, did I do anything wrong? And I realized I hadn't done anything wrong, so I let it all go, and it was all fine. And that is the right way. Instead of being pulled along by the crowd, uh, you stand your ground, even if all your friends go in a different direction. Uh, you go in your own direction because you know, know you're doing the right thing here. And that is really the right way of doing things. Uh, yeah? And that means that you can be independent in the world. Uh, for the vast majority of people, this is very hard to do uh, because we are social animals. We need to feel a sense of belonging in our society. Uh, and to go out, strike out or completely on your own because... Uh, uh, you know something is right. Actually, it's very, very hard to do. Uh, and it really takes someone with very profound meditation and insight to be able to do that. Uh, but it is an ideal that we should lean towards. Uh, we should lean in that direction, uh, not being too, um, too tied to the crowd, tied to the other people's opinions, uh, being, being able to stand our own ground. Uh, and this sort of thing is very important, for example, when it comes to judging uh, where the Dhamma, where Buddhism is going right and where Buddhism is going wrong. Uh. Very often in the world we follow what other people think. Uh. Very often in the world we have lots of people saying, oh yeah, this kind of monk or nun or lay person, they really know what they're talking about. And the more people say that, the more we believe this without really thinking properly. Uh. And this is very dangerous because the crowds are often wrong here. Uh majority of people are deluded. The majority of people are not enlightened. The more people say something, actually it doesn't necessarily mean anything at all. They can get it completely wrong. The majority religion in the world is not Buddhism. The majority religion, religion are other kinds of religion. Even though to my mind, Buddhism is far more, or certainly the Dhamma of the Buddha, is far more powerful than many of these other religions. Still, they are in the majority. And that is kind of what we should expect, uh, because the majority of people don't understand the truth. Uh. So when you see a lot of people saying, oh, this monk is enlightened, uh, be careful. Uh. It may not be right. Maybe it is right, but maybe not. Uh. Think for yourself. Don't be pulled along by the crowd, uh, because if you are, you're going to very likely you're going to uh, go wrong as a consequence. Uh. So trust your own judgment. Uh. Yeah, that is one of the kind of fundamental things on this path. Uh, your judgment, be humble about it, of course. Don't be full of yourself and think you know everything. Be humble. Uh, 
Don't trust it too much, but don't trust your judgment less than the judgment of the crowd. In fact, trust it more, and then you're going to be on the right track. So um, it's kind of a difficult balance, right, to be humble and trust yourself at the same time. But uh, when you get that right, it's actually a very beautiful way of going. It means you take responsibility for your own life. You don't put that responsibility in the hands of other people who you don't know that much about anyway. And then you are kind of heading in the right direction, I think. So, uh, right, so even though the consequences are really bad, all of these monks should have known that the Sangha is being split. The Sangha is being split is a very bad thing, says the Buddha elsewhere. And so they they should have known, they should have listened to others, non-thought another to be better. They should have... Listen to those people uh, who had better ideas. Uh, listen to those people who were saying, actually, we're going wrong here. We are being really destructive. The Sangha is being split. Uh, we're making some really bad karma by doing these things. Uh, let's, not, uh, let's kind of think twice about this. Uh, but of course, uh, that is not how human minds work. You get so engaged in that argument uh, that you are unable to listen to sense at a certain point. Uh, <clears throat> Okay, so then it goes on. Dolts pretending to be astute. Uh, They talk the words right out of bounds. Uh, The blab at will, the mouths agape. Uh, No one knows what leads them on. Uh, Right, This idea that you don't know what leads you on. Uh, You think you are being wise. You think you are being doing the right thing without really standing back and reflecting uh, that what leads you on is actually defilement. It's delusion. It's the crowd that leads you on uh, without really knowing what's going on. And then you talk. yeah. And when you talk, you say things that are really silly. Uh, You think you are smart, but actually just being foolish. uh, And you end up doing all kinds of stupid things as a consequence. Uh, So stand back, understand what is driving you, understand your motivation. This is one of those fundamental things on the Buddhist path, always looking at your motivation. Why are you doing things? Are you coming from ill will, from anger, from the desire to belong in the group, whatever it might be? Or are you coming from wisdom, from kindness and compassion? This is how we know whether we are doing what is right or not, by looking at our motivation. We say that intention is the kamma in Buddhism. Yeah, the kamma you make is based on intention. And that intention uh, is colored by the motivation. It's the motivation that decides uh, whether your intention is good or bad. Uh, what is the difference between motivation and intention? The difference is that intention is what we are aiming at. Uh, motivation is the driving force behind that intention. Uh, so, for example, you may aim at uh, arguing yeah or, or or finding a solution through the argument the motivation is why you are arguing yeah? it is because of uh, delusion or desire or whatever yeah? that's the difference between these two things and both of these things are important ideas and then you have these very famous verses that you find in the Dhammapada coming up next uh, yeah they abused me they hit me they beat me they robbed me yeah? for those who bear such a grudge uh, Hatred never ends. They abused me, they hit me, they beat me, they robbed me. For those who bear no such grudge, hatred has an end. 
And what you will notice here, which is interesting, is that they abused me. This is not negotiable. There will be people who abuse you. In either case, whether you bear a grudge or not, abuse is a given. That people are going to treat you badly in the world, that is a given. Yeah, it's only here at the BSV that people treat you nicely most of the time. <laughs> a large part of the world, they will not treat you nicely. They will abuse you. They will say things to you that you don't want to hear. This is a given in the world. Almost every day goes by and someone is going to say things to you that are not pleasant. Yeah, they hit me. Yeah, sometimes people are going to hit you. You know, your parents might give, hit you occasionally as a child. Yeah, I'm not sure what parents you had, but sometimes parents do these things. Some parents don't, and that's wonderful. I don't think hitting a child is a good idea at all, but some people think that's a good idea, and so they do it. And sometimes people get into brawls and fights and all kind of crazy things. So sometimes you can expect that people will hit you. Rob you. People rob you. People break into your house. They steal your handbag or your wallet or whatever. If they get a chance, they will do that because some people are desperate. So these are givens in the world. We should not seek to live in the world where these things don't exist because such a world doesn't exist. We should recognize that these things are given in the world. Yes, we can try to create a better society where these things are reduced, and of course we should do that, but we should never... It, it is impossible to have a society where these things are completely gone. The only thing that we can do something about is our reaction to these things. These things are given. The hurt in the world is a given. Our reaction to these things, that is what is not given. And so you can react with those things, and you can bear a grudge. You can want to take revenge on people like this. You can be angry with them, irritated and upset and all of these kind of things. And that is your choice, how you react to these things. In fact, it is too easy to call it a choice because very often we don't have a choice because we are conditioned in such a way that actually we do automatically react with anger. Many Probably many of us would react with anger if these things happen to us. Yeah? If someone hit you or whatever, you probably get angry. You wouldn't be very happy with that. Uh, but that is our conditioned response to these things. So we need to recondition ourselves. Uh, and this is what this really is about. Uh, and that reconditioning, uh, that is so much of what the Buddhist path is about. That is where this idea of right effort, where meditation begins, this ability to see the world in a new way. Uh, if someone abuses you, actually, it is not really your problem. It is their problem. This is kind of the thing I've been coming back to again and again during these things. They are the one who have a problem because they are the one who are doing something bad. You know that abuse is unavoidable in this world, so you, kind of, you expect to be abused. And the moment you expect to be abused, it is no longer a surprise. And when it is no longer a surprise, then you are able to deal with it. You are able to accept it for what it is. Of course the world has abuse. It's going to come one way or another. Okay, now it happens to come through this particular person, and you can deal with that. And you remember this idea that it's never really personal because the other person doesn't really do it because it's you. They do it because of their own inner conditioning. And so it's never personal. And so you can look at the other person and you can see and look at them and see, actually, you are the one who has the problem. These things are coming through you. And there's something 
very powerful that happens at that moment when you realize, actually, this has nothing to do with me here. So why am I getting upset if they abuse me here? They are the one who have the problem. The moment you understand that, the moment that clicks, uh, instead of focusing on yourself, uh, instead of being concerned about yourself, at that moment you have compassion for the other person. Uh, and that is extraordinarily powerful. Uh, yeah, when you change your view almost diametrically opposite to an opposite kind of view, uh, 180 degrees, uh, instead of focusing on yourself, uh, you're focusing on another person. You having the problem. Uh, don't say that to them, of course, but that's what you think, right? <laughs> Because if you say that, it's going to get worse. You don't want to make it worse. But that's how you feel in that, in that situation. And the moment you feel like that, you actually have compassion for the other person. And it changes your outlook completely. As long as we are focused on ourselves, uh, I am hurting, this is bad for me or whatever, you are trapped in your own little world. Uh, and there's a feeling of this is my world and the world outside is scary and dangerous and whatever. Uh, that is what it feels like to be, have self-concern. Uh, there is a distinction between me and the world outside. And the world is frightening. The world is always full of danger because me and the world, we are an opposite camp, so to speak. Uh, but the moment you have compassion for that person, you're actually reaching out into the world. Uh, you're tearing down those boundaries, the limitations between you and other people. Uh, and you actually embrace that person uh, who is abusing you uh, because you have compassion for them. Uh, you want to help them at that particular point of view. Uh, you have a sense of sympathy for them because you know that they are trapped in that conditioning of theirs. Uh, and that's a very beautiful moment. Uh, and so instead of kind of... Uh, being angry with them, you almost want to give them a hug. You can't really do that at that time. Yeah, you want to say, "It's okay. Yeah, R relax. It's fine. Don't worry. You know, this will be fine. You, there's an alternative way of dealing with this, or whatever." And then, when the time and opportunity comes, maybe you will be able to point them in a different direction. This is the right way of dealing with this. Yeah, people who abuse you, they rob you, they hit you, whatever they do, it's not about you. It's about them. These are kind of conditioning happening in other people. Uh, and when that, when you see it that way, it just turns everything upside down. Uh, and it changes your worldview. Uh, and it changes your attitude to everything around you. Uh. These are the kind of the beautiful moments in life when you start to see an alternative to our ordinary automatic reactions. Uh, and you start to see that the world can be very different from how you think it is. Uh. This is like the point of view of the Buddha. Yeah, the point of the Buddha where he always has compassion for people. Uh, and we are starting to approach that ideal of the Buddha in our own life. Uh. So um, I remember reading these verses when I first came to Buddhism. I thought, what, what is this all about? This doesn't make any sense. Uh, they beat me. Uh, those who bear no grudge, this, this is impossible. No one can do this kind of stuff. Uh, but of course you can do it. Uh. It's like the simile of the saw, yeah, the famous simile of so the Kakachupama Sutta, Majjhimanikaya 21. Yeah, Kakachupama, this Upamasutta means the simile of the saw. And it's a very powerful simile. And when you first come across this, you think the Buddha must be, what's the Buddha? You can't be serious. How is this possible? And the simile of the saw, as you will know, is the idea of, uh, you know, uh, the Buddha says to his monks uh, that even if someone grabs you and they hop in you down uh, and they take a saw, a two-handled saw, and they saw you, the saw off your limbs, one limb after the other, uh, what are you going to do if that happens? Uh, if you have one moment of anger towards that person who is sawing you limb from limb, uh, you're not following my teaching here. Uh, 
That's what the Buddha says, right? So that Buddha has kind of high demands. He doesn't kind of he doesn't mess around. He's really asking for the highest kind of thing. And so that is a and of course the point of that kind of simile is to make it very clear, yeah, that actually there is you know the the you know it's to put the bar so high that actually it never really justified at all to be angry with anyone. That's kind of the point of that. Yes, you put the bar extremely high just to make sure that you have got the point. And so this is what that is about. So how is that possible? And of course it is possible because you understand, actually, this doesn't really have anything to do with me. Okay, I hurt because of this. But actually, it is these people who saw me limb from limb. These are the ones who have the real problem. Imagine if you are a very good person and you are good people. And then someone saws you in this way. They're going to make enormous amounts of bad karma. They are basically killing you because the blood loss will make sure that you die very quickly afterwards. Yeah. And of course, as soon as you die, if you have metta all the way through, you're going to go straight to a heavenly realm. Yeah? So it's a little bit of dukkha and then you go off to heaven, so it's not no big deal. Yeah? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but this other person, the people who are sawing you limb from limb, they have a very serious problem. They are the ones who have a problem. If you have metta and compassion in your heart, nothing is going to go wrong with you. They are the ones who have the problem. And so you have a sense of sympathy for them because you understand they have no idea what they're doing here. They are crazy here. They are mad. They are deluded. They don't understand what is for their own benefit or for the benefit of anyone. And this is kind of the, uh, the power here of compassion and metta. It goes very, very deep. And when you do it in the right way, then uh, you know, even these incredibly difficult situations you know how to deal with them. Uh, so this is the idea behind these verses, yeah? Simple verses. This is what you, the benefit of reading a book or verse like the Dhammapada, it reminds you of these very beautiful teachings on the path. Uh, sometimes you just need the reminder. You know, need to know the uh, kind of the broader idea behind this. Uh, and then uh, after, once you understand the broader idea, you just need to be reminded again and again and again. Just read that simple verse. Uh, now it starts to make sense to you. Uh, have it on your bed, uh, bedside table. Uh, bring it out. Uh, read a few verses every night. Uh, and then as you do that, uh, uh, remind it again, like brainwashing yourself gradually, gradually, gradually. Uh, this is the idea of uh, rectifying our views, uh, of sorting out our perceptions, of aligning them uh, with the way the Buddha is talking. Uh, we need to do this gradual brainwashing uh, yeah, I, sometimes people say, well, we don't want to be brainwashed, but you have no choice. You're going to be brainwashed anyway. Yeah. Just have to choose the good brainwashing. Yeah. And uh, this is true, right? We are brainwashed in the sense that every, we are conditioned. Uh, conditioning is just brainwashing. Yeah. And if there is no self, then all we are is conditioning. Yeah. So we have to be very careful what we choose. We choose our conditioning in the right way. Yeah. We choose the right kind of brainwashing. Yeah. Then we're on the right track. Yeah. So we need to re- Remember these things. If you know that this is a good teaching, that it leads on the right track, be reminded of it again and again and again. And as you do that, gradually, 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 you're moving around and your view is getting sorted out and it's kind of aligning with a far better way of thinking about the world. So um, then uh, comes this other verse, which also is very powerful, also found in the Dhammapada and everywhere else. For never is hatred settled by hate. It is only settled by love. This is an eternal truth. You cannot overcome hate by more hate. 
Hate just leads to endless retaliation, uh, one person retaliating and then revenge back and forth all the time, uh, never forgiving the other party, uh, yeah, uh, just going round and round and round. Uh, if we want to end the problems of hate, we have to learn to forgive, uh, we have to learn to have metta and compassion in our lives. That is where the cycle of hate, the cycle of anger comes to a stop. Uh, and sometimes it's kind of crazy how, how we as human beings kind of carry on the grudges from the past in our hearts. Uh, and sometimes it's really, really despairing. I, sometimes I hear about people, some people are very proud. Yeah? Some kind of cultures are, have, very, have a very deep idea of pride in their culture. Yeah? And uh, I, I remember some of the, you know, in, in Europe, I remember there were some uh, of the southern European cultures, they were talking about invasions that happened to the country hundreds of years ago. Uh, and they were still remembering these invasions hundreds of years ago. There was like 10 generations ago, yeah, oh yeah. And then every generation passes it down to the children, yeah, don't forget this. This happened 2,000 years ago, yeah, make sure you remember this. Pass it on to the next generation. Never forgive. Yeah? The day of revenge will eventually arrive. Uh, or something crazy like that. Uh, imagine the burden that you're passing on to the future generations. Uh, imagine that kind of that ill will that you carry with you. Uh, it's kind of madness, right? Uh, why do we do these things? Uh, and we do these things because of our sense of pride. Uh, because our sense of ego. The ego will not let it go. Uh, because we are proud people. Uh, I remember then, um, this was one of the things that was really weird. I remember when the, uh, we had the invasions of Afghanistan. Yeah, the, Afghanistan has been a very, obviously very difficult to be an Afghanistan person because uh, so many invasions, the Russians invaded, before that the British invaded, invaded, and after that the Americans have invaded. One invasion after the other. Uh, and, uh, but I remember what... Um, one of these Afghanis said, yeah, and I, I guess some of these Afghanis are very proud people, probably, yeah? and they said, yeah, we have still haven't forgotten about Alexander the Great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now the Westerners are coming back. Alexander the Great was, was a Westerner from the Afghani perspective because he came from Greece, right, Macedonia, and now they're coming back again. 2,300 years later, we haven't forgotten, now you're coming back, okay. <laughs> And uh, this is kind of the stupidity of uh, revenge. It's the stupidity of the ego, the sense of self that never lets go, always carries on. Uh, and this is how you can en ensure that we're always going to have more wars in the human realm. Uh, so if we, the wise person is always the person who forgives. Uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting. The Buddha says in the suttas, uh, the wise one uh, is the one who asks for forgiveness first. Uh, so if you want to be wise, always ask for forgiveness first. Uh, even if you think you haven't done anything wrong, still ask for forgiveness. Uh, because the other person quite likely thinks that you have done something wrong, right? That's often how things are. Uh, so ask for forgiveness. Say, you know, just say, okay, maybe I have done something wrong. I'm not really sure, uh, but uh, please forgive me for whatever I may have done wrong. Uh, and uh, that opens up the possibility of healing right there. Uh, and if someone does ask you for forgiveness, always grant forgiveness. The Buddha specifically says in the sutta that the person who does not grant forgiveness when someone asks is a fool. Yeah, it's always grant forgiveness when someone asks. Because if someone is coming from a pure heart asking forgiveness, it's terrible not to grant that. 
Yeah, so this is the right way. Then we can have a bit of peace in the world. Uh, and we can do that also within our Buddhist societies because the Buddhist societies also have uh, arguments and quarrels and problems because that's the nature of human beings. Uh, and then we can ask for forgiveness within those Buddhist communities, uh, within the BSWI or BSV or within monasteries or whatever. Uh, and I will probably have to ask forgiveness for Ajahn Nisarana after leaving here, after all these days together. Because when you live close together, you irritate each other a little bit, right? Uh, and Ajahn Nisarana is such an incredibly nice monk. So how can I not, you know, I, this morning I was just had a problem with my, one of my robes. Uh, and Ajahn Nisarana said, okay, give it to me. I'll sort it out. And he took it out of my hands. I said, okay, fine. That's <laughs> this is kind of the, you know, the, the level of... Uh, kindness and uh, support you get so but still even though you have such a good companionship with your fellow monks not always but usually you do uh, still it's good to ask for forgiveness occasionally because there's always these problems arise in any kind of community here so important simple things in life right Uh, don't allow your pride to get the better of you Uh, pride is a bad thing in the world Pride is kind of blocks us from moving forward, blocks us from living morally and with kindness, blocks us from seeking forgiveness when we should. Uh, please don't be too proud. Uh, please leave that aside. Uh, it is a st- stupidity to be proud in the world. Allow other people, if they want to be proud, okay, it's their problem. Uh, I'm not going to be too proud, of, uh, too pride, pride, proud in this world. Uh, so then... Uh, you have metta, then you let go, then you settle the hate in the world. Yeah? And uh, what a wonderful thing that is if we can do that. Uh, this is an eternal truth, uh, sanantara, satcha, something like that. Uh, yeah? This is just the way the world works. Uh, this is not something that just Buddhism says, but it's how the world actually functions. Uh. Others don't understand that here we need to be restrained. But those who understand this, being clever, they settle their conflicts. Sometimes you have to hold back. Sometimes it's the wrong time to speak. Sometimes it is the wrong time to act. Don't say anything. If other people are arguing, like you see here with the Buddha, the Buddha just walks off. He doesn't continue speaking when he knows that there is no solution to the problem. Sometimes when you're sitting around the table having a debate or discussing something and you can feel that the argument is flaring up, the tempers are rising, you know the time now is just to remain quiet. It's interesting, the wise people in the world, they don't talk very much. That's how you know that I'm not so wise because I talk too much sitting up here. (laughs) Someone like Ajahn Brahm, it's kind of wonderful to sit next to him. He doesn't say very much. He sits there and he kind of listens and he doesn't really talk very much. And then you, maybe you ask him a question, then he might say something. Yeah. And there's something very beautiful about that. This is a peaceful presence. Uh, and he knows when to remain quiet, uh, when not to speak. Uh, the moment he feels maybe that things are getting a bit heated, uh, he doesn't say anything. He doesn't engage anymore. Ajahn Brahm doesn't argue. Uh, if other people want to argue, that's their problem. But he doesn't engage in those kind of things. Uh, he stands back. He knows now is the time to be restrained. And for many of us, a lot of the time, we would do very well not to speak so much, to hold back, to know that now is the time not to talk. And so this is what this is about here. Those who understand this, yeah, they settle their conflicts because they are clever, they are smart, they are wise. And then uh, uh, the Buddha is kind of despairing a little bit about his monks, yeah? 
because he says here, the breakers of bones and takers of lives, the thieves of cattle, horses, and wealth, uh, those who plunder the nation, uh, even they can work together. Uh, so why on earth can't you? Uh? <laughs> oh, this is kind of, uh, this is painful. But this is true. Yeah, Sometimes uh, we, uh, sometimes even... Uh, uh, even the real scallywags in the world can work together. Of course, if you really are a um, bad person, the chances chances are that working together won't last all that long. Uh, but nevertheless, sometimes uh, these things happen. Uh, and then comes the last part of this, which are also our famous verses. Uh, if you find an alert companion, uh, alerted nipaka, a wise and virtuous friend, uh, then overcoming all adversities, wonder with them, joyful and mindful. Uh, the alert companion is like the Kalyanamitta, someone who has a same looking at the world in the same way that you do, uh, someone who is able to support you, uh, someone who will uh, thinks like you, pulls in the same direction, uh, someone who will remind you of the Dhamma, someone who will be inspiring to be with. Uh, yeah, they are wise and virtuous. Uh, if you have a person like that, then of course uh, you stay with them because they are actually supportive, uh, at least until you have Samadhi. Then when you have Samadhi, you might go to be completely by yourself. In the meantime, you stay with such people. Uh, and it's kind of fascinating because sometimes, you know, you find someone really nice uh, and uh, you realize that actually you are not as good as they are. Uh, and then you kind of try to hold on to them where they kind of slightly, okay, uh, I'd like to be by myself a bit more. <laughs> this is the feeling I have with Ajahn Brahm sometimes, yeah, I'm kind of sitting there next to him uh, and uh, I kind of feel that Ajahn Brahm actually he doesn't really want to engage. He'd rather just walk off to his cutie <laughs> rather than be with me. That's kind of a... Actually, that's a nice thing when that happens, uh, because I, it, he doesn't come from ill will. Uh, he doesn't come from it's just this feeling that here is someone who wants to be in solitude. Uh, yeah? And actually, it's a nice feeling. Yeah? And it doesn't really offend me at all when I, when I feel that from someone like Ajahn Brahm, because uh, actually, I don't really need that company either. Sometimes uh, it's uh, nice to be with someone who is really you know, virtuous, and it kind of rubs off on you, and it is this feeling of osmosis going into you. But uh, a lot of the time, you don't need that. Um, Ajahn Brahm is not an ordinary companion. Uh, and this, I think, is kind of one of those nice things in the world. We have different levels of friendships. Uh, there are some friends that are more on an equal level. Uh, people that you have your ordinary Kalyanamittas around you. Uh, and these are very important as well. They are friends who support you in one way. Uh, but then you have the Kalyanamittas that are on a higher level. Uh, and there's a different kind of relationship uh, and with someone like Ajahn Brahm, you don't have the same kind of relationship as you have with someone who is like with, you know, other monks who are kind of, you feel are more on your level, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, so this is important. Yeah, the Buddha also is kind of on a higher level. You have a different relationship with the Buddha than you have with your other Kalyanamittas. Uh, so you have different levels of friendships. Uh, this is also an important uh, way of thinking about this. Uh, so you... Um, uh, having these good friends, yeah, you overcome all adversities with friends, so you wander with them joyful and mindful. And this is kind of the critical thing. Yeah? If you really have a good friend, uh, you tend to be joyful and mindful when you are with them. Uh, because these people, they give rise. When you see the good qualities in them, you feel joyful. You feel fortunate that you have such good friends in the world. Uh, 
And this is very important, yeah, to remember that, that you actually are very fortunate in a place like the BSV. Yeah. You really do have many good friends there. And so look at those good friends in the right way, because when you do that, you will feel a sense of joy that you have these kind of kalanamitas. Yeah. It's hard to find people like this in the world. It is quite rare. People who are generally interested in the spiritual path, uh, never forget that it's so easy to remember the, the bad qualities of other people because everyone has some bad qualities, uh, but that is not what matters. Uh, what matters is that the people around you have good intentions. Uh, they want to do the right thing, even if they don't always succeed. Uh, and what a wonderful thing that is. Uh, and when you start to think about these people around you in that way, uh, then, of course, then, then is what this happens. You start to feel a sense of joy. You sit in your meditation, you remember these things, and you feel so happy. You feel so blessed. You feel so uh, that you are on the right track. And this is how this path really starts to work really well. But sometimes you don't find any alert companion, no wise and virtuous friend. Then, like the king who flees his conquered realm, wander alone like a tusker in the wilds. This is like the Buddha in this case. Actually, he doesn't really find any wise and virtuous friend. And so the Buddha is like the king who flees his conquered realm. And I, uh, I'm not sure if I fully understand what is going on here. The king who flees his conquered realm. Um, how that relates to... Uh, 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 exactly what's going on here but um, I guess maybe the king realizes that uh, you know actually conquering stuff just that's not really what it is about uh, yeah maybe the Buddha in a sense kind of arguably maybe he has um, you know he has converted many people many people have had success but actually the Buddha doesn't want to be involved with these people he doesn't want to be involved with difficulties etc so it is like he has conquered something, conquered the defilements, conquered, built up a sangha, built up lay disciples, but he has no attachment to those disciples of his. He just allows them to go according to their own dispositions and kamma and tendencies, perhaps. Perhaps something like that. In the same way, the wise king, actually after a while, he doesn't really want that conquered realm after all. He just gives it up again and he flees that conquered realm because he understands the dukkha involved with all of that. Something like that, I'm not sure. So um, then you wonder, like a tusker, a tusker is like this big elephants, yeah, the big, usually considered to be male elephants, and they kind of wander alone in the wilds. Uh, in the same way, the uh, Buddha is also like a, a big elephant in this way. The Pali word is Naga, and the word Naga has a lot of different meanings in the Pali language. Uh, one meaning of the word Naga is a big elephant. Uh, another is like a serpent yeah, or a dragon or something like that. And Nagas are these uh, supernatural beings in Buddhism. Uh, but a Naga really means any being that is kind of powerful and large. Uh, and so the Arahants are also called Nagas. Yeah? The Buddha is a kind of Naga as well. Uh, so it is used in a very broad kind of sense. Uh, and so you have here the... Um, uh, the Buddha, we'll see this later on when we come to the verses later on, uh, that this is how these words are used. Uh, it's better to wander alone. There is no fellowship with fools. Uh, wander alone and do no wrong uh, at ease like a tusker in the wilds. Uh, so if you cannot find anyone to hang out with, uh, if there's no one there who is your equal, uh, no Kalyanamitta who can, can support you on the path, uh, 
don't hang out with people just because they are there or because you need companionship or whatever. If you hang out too much with fools, uh, you have a problem. Uh, and this is uh, kind of one of the things that uh, we often discuss in Buddhism. People will often ask, but shouldn't we hang out with people who don't really understand? Uh, yeah, to kind of stay with them, to kind of show them the path or whatever. Uh, and sometimes, yes, sometimes you will meet people in the life who are foolish, who don't really understand. Uh, but remember that when you are, when you do hang out with Papa Mittas, Papa Mittas, the opposite of the Kalana Mitta, you will be affected by that. It will drag you down to some extent. And so you have to be very careful in the company of people who have bad qualities because it will affect you eventually at the end of the day. So you, you deal with them. You go through what you have to do, because sometimes there is no choice, but you don't hang out with them unnecessarily. You don't choose their company if you can avoid it. Yeah, This is kind of part of what this is about. And then, especially here in the monastic situation, you then go off on your own, and you go into the wilds, and then you try to live your life on your own. And... Um, that can be very beautiful if you have the ability to do that. Uh, yeah, Some people do, some people don't. Uh, knowing the right time, the right place to do these things, uh, uh, you, you spend more time by yourself. Uh, some people are really good at spending time in their own company because they enjoy their own company. Uh, and the way to enjoy your own company is to have metta and compassion for the world. Uh, the more compassion and metta you have for everyone in the world, uh, the easier it is to enjoy your own company. Uh, this is the weird thing. It is actually how you feel about others uh, that makes you able to be stable and enjoy your own company. Uh, if you have ill will towards others, uh, you may want to withdraw, but actually you're not ready for it. Uh, so build up that metta in your heart, the compassion. Treat people really well. Then the enjoyment of your own company will come as a consequence. All right. That is... Uh, all for this morning yeah. so please keep on enjoying yourself have a very nice lunch and we'll see you again at two o'clock this afternoon yeah.